Hi, this is Whitney Johnson, author of Smart Growth, and you are listening to my quest for the best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Whitney Johnson. Whitney Johnson is the CEO of Disruption Advisors, a tech-enabled talent development company and an expert on growing your people to grow your company, known as Smart Growth Leadership. Thinkers 50 ranked her among the top 10 management thinkers in the world in 2021. In 2020, she was a top voice on LinkedIn, where she has 1.8 million followers. She's an award-winning author, world-class speaker, and frequent lecturer for Harvard Business Publishing Corporate Learning Division, and an award-winning executive coach and advisor to CEOs. She's the author of several best-selling books, including Disrupt Yourself, Build an A-Team, and the host of the weekly Disrupt Yourself podcast. Whitney lives in Lexington, Virginia, and is here to talk about her book, Smart Growth, How to Grow Your People to Grow Your Company. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you, Bill. I'm delighted to be here. It is such a pleasure to be with you. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's somebody that influenced or inspired you? Samantha on Bewitched. I loved that television show. I watched it faithfully, and I think she inspired me because, first of all, she could wiggle her nose and make magical things happen. But I also loved loved how she was so much the center of her family life for her children, for her husband, and she could solve any problem. I really admired her. What's a way that played out for you before you left home? You were watching the TV, I imagine, like after school, and you saw that and were inspired to be able to solve any problem. Did that enable you to take on challenges when you were growing up? That's a great question, Bill. I don't know for sure. I think there was some element of, it was probably all subconscious. I think there were two things. Number one is she was a, a problem solver. Number two, I liked how there was a strong familial sense, a strong mothering sense. And I do think that absolutely influenced me as I think about getting older and wanted to have my own family. Somehow that imprinting was in the back of my mind. So there was this sense of competence, but also this sense of relatedness to the people around her. Do you remember a time maybe early in your career, where that identity that you had embraced as a problem solver, also as someone who could stay connected with people around you as taking on some big challenges, had an influence. And you remember a decision you made or perhaps even a conversation you had that had some of that little extra magic as a result of Samantha. <laughs> yeah. When I first got to Wall Street, I had studied music in college and was very ill-equipped to be on Wall Street. I literally had never set foot in any sort of business ever. No accounting, no finance, no nothing. It was music theory and playing the piano and recitals and jazz band and all that. When I started on Wall Street, as a secretary, there was something inside of me, and I'm sure that there was some element of my mother's influence on me as well, but this sense of, I'm going to figure this out, I'm going to problem solve, I'm going to get promoted and be successful and have this career and not just make X, and but make 10X. So I don't know for sure, but again, because she was so much in the back of my mind in my childhood, I'm sure that it was imprinting somewhere. During the time that you're a Wall Street analyst, you met a Harvard professor 
who changed your life. Tell me about meeting Clayton Christensen. I remember the first time I met Clayton Christensen, I was actually in church. There was a big church meeting and we go to the same church. I remember hearing him speak and he was six foot eight, incredibly gifted as a speaker. He had this towering intellect and also very gentle, very spiritual. I remember hearing him speak and I thought, wow, he is amazing. I want to know more about him. So I bought his book, The Innovator's Dilemma, and I remember I was working in New York and I made a trek down to D.C. so I could hear him speak about how the telecom industry was getting disrupted. I just thought, I want to work with him. At this point, I'm still working on Wall Street. His theory of disruption was influencing me as I was thinking about what was happening in the emerging markets where wireless, every quarter I was setting my estimates and building my financial models and they kept on beating my estimates and I was trying to figure out why are they beating my estimates. And when I found Clayton's theory of disruption, oh, that's what's happening. They're being disrupted. So I studied his work. I read The Innovator's Dilemma. I bought it for a lot of different people and eventually reached out to him, shared a research report with him that I had written. I think, again, to talk about influence, in the back of my mind, I knew I wanted to work with him because when I left Wall Street and I basically disrupted myself, I did not have a job at the time, but I did not take my financial models with me. I had effectively burned the boats. I knew I wasn't going back. I knew I wanted to work with him, but I didn't know I wanted to work with him yet. I think that happens oftentimes. We know we want something, but we're not ready to dare to dream that we could do it, but we're putting in place circumstances. So that outcome is the outcome that we want. I really can relate to that where you're maybe not ready to admit it to yourself or make it explicit, <laughs> but you're making all the moves <laughs> so that you're ready. What was yours? Do you remember? Did, did you have an experience like that? I remember moving from being in high school math and computer science teacher in boarding schools, knowing that I was going to get a job in technology because I'd just gotten married. It was a wonderful setup where I was teaching math. I was coaching tennis and living on campus. I was having the greatest time of life. I got married that summer. And one night over dinner, my wife looked at me and said, honey, what do you think we're going to be doing next year? Well, I wasn't married long, but I knew that there was more to the conversation than just the surface text. So what were you doing a year from then? I got a job at Drexel University and was managing all sorts of great things with their new Macintosh program. That's what eventually led to my working at Apple. It really is interesting how those decisions turn out. I didn't have the job when we moved here. I didn't know it was going to be Drexel, but I knew that I wanted to do something with that technology. Lo and behold, just a few years later, I was then working at Apple and it was such a different world. I remember driving down 101 and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, and thinking what meetings I would be in or what classes I would be teaching if I'd stayed a teacher. I love those moments where we think, oh, what if I'd made that decision and instead you made another decision and how your life just has turned out so different. When was it that you had the insight that disruption can happen on a personal level mm. and not just the level of an industry disruption like Airbnb, a market disruption like Craigslist or classified advertising or organizational disruption that we see going on all the time and maybe even deliberately? When did you realize it could be personal? Yeah, so it's interesting. I had read The Innovator's Dilemma and I think this is probably 2004-ish. I had been an institutional investor ranked equity analyst for seven consecutive years. And I had gone to my boss and I said, hey, I really want to do something else. I'm ready to try something new. He effectively said to me, we like you right where you are. I remember feeling disconsolate's probably too strong of a word, but just feeling very deflated. This sense of, oh, I've worked so hard and I want to do something else. Is this all there is for me? Now had read The Innovator's Dilemma. I'd been applying as an equity analyst. It was an explanatory 
mechanism for what was happening. I actually remember where I was reading on the page practically in the innovator's dilemma. I had this big aha of, oh, this can apply to me. This applies to people. If I'm going to do what I feel like I need to get done in life, which at this point I had no idea what it was, but you have this sense, right? This sense that there's more like your wife had for you and probably you had for yourself. I'm going to need to disrupt myself. I can apply this idea to myself. It was around 2004 and I had this really clear sense of I'm going to have to leave here. What's interesting about Disruption Bill is that there's a lot of it that people will look at and say, why did you do that? That makes no sense. The reason we oftentimes disrupt ourselves, it's not that the functional job isn't getting done. It's not that we're not getting paid. It's not that we don't have food on the table. There's an emotional job that's not getting done. That's what happened for me is there was an emotional job of, I think there's more for me in life. It's not going to happen here because they don't see more for me. So I disrupted myself and I left Wall Street to become an entrepreneur and did not have anything set at the time. I just disrupted. By definition, it's a discontinuity with where you currently were. Yes. Said like a mathematician that you are. I love it. So I wouldn't ask this question of any expert, but I bet you know of a manager that no matter where he or she worked, if they decided to move to a different company, there would be other people who would just gladly quit and follow because of the kind of manager that they are. Who is a person who comes to mind? Get share a first name of a boss of this nature. And then let's talk about what this person does that makes people want to work for him or her, even when it means disrupting their own lives. So the person that's coming to mind for me is a fellow by the name of Sumit Shetty. He's a dev manager, mid-level manager at SAP in India. Every time he has a new person working for him, he talks to them about their aspirations, about the general direction of their career, about their why. He then takes some time and identifies where they are on their S curve of learning. I know we'll talk about that in a minute. Then he puts together a development plan for them. Not only what are they going to do in executing against the plan, the the team goals, the company-wide goals, but how are they going to personally develop? Every time he meets with them, they talk about that they also also talk about them personally. And then if he sees an opportunity for someone, for example, hey, I know you're very technically focused, but I think you could be potentially be a great people manager. He helps advocate for them to become a people manager. So you've now got a person who is very high performing, very focused on developing his people. People will follow him anywhere because they know that if they're working for him, they're not only going to do good work, but they are going to grow and develop. One of the greatest predictors we've found in our research of how long someone stays is do they perceive that there is growth upside? If there's growth upside, that person is probably going to stay for as long as they possibly can, even if the pay is not as good as it might be somewhere else, because they believe that deep need that we have to grow and develop is going to be met. Inversely, if people are not being fed that emotional source of energy, that emotional challenge, if they're not being cultivated that way, they are more susceptible to being poached from a company for just 5,000 more. There's so many talented people out there with skill sets that are in demand that could be swayed, convinced to move merely if they're if they're only seen as being reward, if their only reward is being seen as giving them a salary and benefits. Mm-hmm. I think that's something so crucial for managers to understand that once you are paying people above a level, and I've read research that says it's about $75,000 across the United States, mm-hmm. that gives you an upper middle class lifestyle where you no longer have to think about your food, shelter, belongings, 
things, where you're going to get things met, but you're now able to think higher on Maslow's hierarchy mm -hmm. and think about where do I belong? What's going to be my purpose? How am I going to make a contribution? Now you need to think about as a leader within a company, how do you maintain those people? So you took the tall S and you said it's divided into three stages, the launch point, the sweet spot, and mastery. Then within each of those stages, you have two named positions. So for the launch point, you have the explorer and the collector. And the explorer, everyone is excited about because it's thrill-seeking. It can be slow and frustrating, but at least you're starting to figure things out. The collector's point is where people are seeking input and they're gathering data about their hypothesis, about their vision in order to make it happen. Now in the next stage, the sweet spot is the fast growth stage marked by the accelerator term and metamorph, which is where you've conquered the kinds of challenges that inhibit you from growth and you're actually making fast growth. As then in the third phase of mastery, you have the anchor phase where I love the phrase it used where ease displaces effort. You've achieved enough repetitions of doing a particular skill, understanding a particular challenge, where now you can do it with a lot of unconscious competence. And the flattened part of that top curve is the mountaineer. And that's where it's no longer a challenge. What was exciting about it before has now become rope. You have the neural pathways laid out. And of course, the risk there is of being complacent, of not feeling challenged. I know that's just a capsule summary. Ah, well done. There, well okay. done. You get an A. Uh, I want to um, make sure I didn't misrepresent anything before we went further. Let me just put a what would you uh, add to that? underscore it, I think, to drive it home for people is that there is the launch point, the sweet spot mastery. Launch point is the place where growth is happening, but it feels. The sweet spot is the place where growth is fast and and it feels fast. And mastery is a place where time goes by fast, but your growth is slow. So if you wanted to map the emotional experience that you're having is it slow and then fast and slow is how you grow. This S curve gives you a mental map of what growth looks like. When you know what it looks like, when you know where you're oriented or how you're oriented, you increase your capacity to grow. So that's just underscoring the explanation that you gave. Loved it. How is it that leaders who understand this S curve could help solve some of the struggles that they experience with helping people to grow who are on their team or even looking to apply it, helping people to grow as the application of the S-curve now? The first example would be Sumit Shetty that I just mentioned. He brings people in, he identifies where they are, what do they need to build momentum, whether they're the launch point, the sweet spot, or mastery. Let me give you another example. This can be used as both developing someone, but also very much as a retention tool. Patrick Pichette, he was the former CFO of Google, and when he was first hired, he had actually been responsible for operations two times previously. So in many respects, he was at the top of his S-curve from an operations standpoint. So by hiring him, there was a real risk that in six months, a year, he was going to be bored and go find something else to do. So Eric Schmidt said to him, Patrick, I want to hire you, but we do have a problem because you're going to get bored. So here's what, what we're going to do is you're going to start as a CFO, but every time you feel like you're at the top of your curve, he didn't say that, those are my words, but every time you feel like you get into mastery, I want you to come to me and say, hey, I need something new. Basically, every 18 months, he went and had that conversation with Eric. Schmidt. So he ended up with real estate. He ended up with people. He ended up with operations. He ended up with Google Fiber. He ended up with the nonprofit arm. And that allowed him because every time he got to a top of a curve, he could keep climbing. He was able to stay as a CFO of Google for seven years. So that's a practical application of using this as this artifact, as a way to start a conversation around growth and development. What I hope everyone listening to that example understands is that it's possible for people to grow without a change 
change in title simply by adding more to their responsibility portfolio. That is exciting for people because you often run out of terms. You can only add senior so many times to a person's title. Would you share with me how you use it in your own business to your insights and understanding of the S-curve in order to engineer the transition from the launch to the sweet spot? How you went from getting maybe your first couple clients to how to scale, which is something that you're at this point now in your business, as I understand it. It's a great question. First of all, because I have this mental model, because it's so simple, because it's so visual, it makes it very useful because I can remember it. So when I think about our business, we are in many respects at the launch point. I've been podcasting for three or four years. You could argue we're in the sweet spot, but we're in the launch point from the standpoint of we have an assessment that allows you to see where you are on the S-curve, so our S-curve insight tool. We're just now building that and are very much at the launch point. Let me give a little bit more context. If you think about for each one of us, our team is a portfolio of S-curve. So you want to have different people at different points along the curve. But for us personally, our life and our career is a portfolio of S-curves. So what you're ideally wanting to do is to be in the sweet spot as long as possible. But because you've got a portfolio of curves, like you just said, with the, the SaaS tool, launch point, podcast, sweet spot, consulting or coaching, sweet spot mastery. When you put all of those together, that allows you to be in the sweet spot. And ideally, that is what would happen. Sometimes you're going to get to mastery and you just are. So one company that we were consulting with, they had a person, CMO, it's a company that's about a $50 million revenue company. And there was no other curve for her to jump to. So she did go and become a CMO at another company, but it allows a very amicable discussion around that because it's not like, I don't like you or the company. It's just that I need a new S curve. So for each person who's listening, you can think of your life as a portfolio of S curves and you're going to optimize them by trying to have a mix that allows you to be in the sweet spot. Then you can also think of optimizing your team for growth by having roughly 60% of your team in the sweet spot and then 20% at the launch point and 20% in mastery. That is so insightful and profound for people to understand that you never can be in just one point in every aspect of your business. There are going to be aspects of it that are at the launch point, some at the sweet spot, some at mastery. And you need to take that broader picture of it in order to understand what's going to excite you, what's going to engage you, as well as your team members. You call out to business leaders with the advice to grow yourself, to grow the people who you are responsible for. Yet many senior managers think that is the last thing that's needed is personal growth. How do you have that conversation when they're saying, we, we want you to apply this, and then you have to bring it around to say, why are you at the mastery stage and you have nothing in the, the launcher sweet spot yourself? Yeah. In general, those leaders don't want to work with us because they don't. And that's probably a good thing for all involved. What I will say, Bill, is that the last two years have been really good in that respect. There was a study that was done by Aegon Zender this year, and they surveyed a thousand CEOs. And 80% of those CEOs strongly agreed, 100% agreed, but 80% strongly agreed that they needed to not only transform the business, they needed to transform themselves. So you and I are both saying, yes, of course, that makes sense. What's intriguing, astonishing, appalling, dare I say, is that prior to the pandemic, that number was only 26%. So since the pandemic, the number of CEOs that believe that it's about transforming themselves in order to transform the business has tripled, which I think is very positive. Now, why does this matter so much? Because when you and I, as the CEO of a business, are transforming ourselves, we are modeling for everybody in the company what growth looks like. We're giving permission for everybody in the company to grow. If we are 
more than doing that because of the contagion effect. Everyone in the company is therefore growing, moving along their S-curves. If every single person in the company is growing, then your company is going to grow by definition. One of the terms that's used a lot is high performance. And what does that mean operationally to you? And how can you think of building a high-performing team given the S-curve insights? First thing I would say is that if someone is on the right S-curve, then they are in a position to be a high performer. Typically, when someone is in the sweet spot of the S, that's when people say, oh, that person is a high performer. I would argue a couple of things from an individual perspective. In my mind, a peak performer is a person who is capable of moving through all phases of the growth cycle. It's a person who can effectively navigate the launch point, be in that place of not knowing what they're doing and manage through that and be willing to have it be messy, but to do it as quickly and effectively as possible. It's a person who can optimize the sweet spot of knowing enough, but not too much. And then a person who, once they get into mastery, is capable and willing to bring other people along, but does not stagnate. I need to keep climbing. So they're able to complete that growth cycle. That to me is a peak performer and a high performer. Now, in terms of a team, the way I'm defining a high performing team, I wrote a book called Build an A Team. It's a team where you, number one, have everybody on the team who is building momentum along the growth curve, whether they're at the launch point, the sweet spot, or a mastery. And as I alluded to earlier, it's a team that is optimized for growth by having some percentage of your people in the sweet spot, most of your people in the sweet spot, some in at the launch point, some in mastery, thinking about a standard bell curve distribution, knowing that depending on the size of your company, the stage of growth that your company is in, the industry that you're in, that could shift. But that's a good starting point for you as a business, in particular with the companies that you're working with where you've got 500 employees or less you're going to think of it as probably growing. So you want to really focus on most of your people in the sweet spot. Definitely some people at the launch point. You just want to be aware that you don't have too many people graduating into mastery because that's where you can start to stagnate. So that's the place that you want to watch. In the pandemic lockdown, many people have been, once again, thrown into the learning curve, the launch point, because now they've had to adapt and maybe do job with skills they're familiar with, but when situations they're unfamiliar with or dealing with concurrent challenges. How does not only the complexity of this, but whether people have a growth mindset or a closed mindset? Said, impact their ability to move through the S-curve? First of all, I would say, Bill, is that if you, you, through this framework, there's the pre-pandemic S-curve that we were on, and now we hope almost post-pandemic S-curve that we're on. We were all pushed off of an S-curve and are now at the launch point. What I would say is that how we deal with disruption defines us. While there are some of us that are managing this not with a growth mindset, but with a fixed mindset, what I think most of us have seen is that we are far more resilient and capable than we thought we were. So part of what I think is happening right now, we talk a lot about the great resignation. I actually think it is that. I think there is some of that, but resignation implies that people are giving up and I don't see people giving up. I see people aspiring to more. So for me, it's more of the great aspiration of people are saying, I have been disrupted. I've gone through this massive upheaval. I have figured out all of these ways 
ways of doing and being that I never thought that I could. Now I'm saying, they're saying, I want more. And so if I can't have more here in this job, then I will go find somewhere else to have more. And so for me, that's one of my big, big observations is that we are all much better at growing, I think, than many of us thought we were. Yeah. Or that we've given credit for by our supervisors, managers, teammates. Yes. And it's important for us to acknowledge for ourselves, even if we don't get it, the outside feedback from others. Agreed. What's your perspective on how managers can keep their people engaged and growing amid this uncertainty and the anxiety of 2022? And the anxiety at work is a, a term that's so aptly described and coined by our friends Chester Elton and Adrian <laughs> Gostick. Yeah. How is it that we can keep people growing in this year and beyond? What are a couple tangible recommendations that you would have, have managers focus on? These are going to sound very simple, yet they're so important. Number one is have a conversation with with each of your people about where they are in their growth. Draw out the S-curve and say, where do you think you are? You can also have them take the assessment so that you can see where they're presenting. Then you can have a conversation about where you think they are. And the mere fact of having that conversation will indicate to them that you care about their growth, you care about them, and that will be very motivating. So I think that is the place to start. The second thing that I would say is to remind yourself that you are the keystone species in their ecosystem. So we talk a lot about I'm climbing this S-curve and I need to make sure that people will help me grow so that I can develop and I can fulfill all my potential. But as a manager, you are the ecosystem. You are the weather patterns for the people on that map. Ask yourself, in addition to having that conversation, recognize that there are things that you are likely doing or not doing that are making it easier or harder for them to to grow and to be aware of what those things are. That would be the second thing. I think that the third thing and probably the most important is to ask your people. I would say is you need to make it safe for people to talk about the experiences that they're having. And the only way that you can make this safe, and this goes back to what I said earlier, the Aegon Zender study, you have to transform yourself and the organization, is to talk about your experiences. So I was actually on a panel the other day with Chester and we were talking about mental wellness and, and how what we do at work. I made the very deliberate decision. And I didn't even know that I was doing this, but I was. I said, I care about mental wellness or mental well-being because anxiety runs in my family. I have a younger brother who committed suicide, so I care about the topic. After I did that, because I was in a position of relative power because I'm on the panel, so you have the ability to do that. I had so many people reach out to me and say, thank you for saying that. Thank you for talking about that. So working my way backwards is you model the behavior you want to see. Transform yourself, transform from your people. You talk about your experience that you're having. That makes it psychologically safe. Number two, remember you are the keystone species as a boss for everybody who works for you. They're going to say you were the best boss ever or the worst boss ever. I'd rather be the best boss ever. Number three, have a conversation. Where are you on the S-curve? How can I help you grow? When you say talk about what it's like for you, implicit in what you said is that you talk about what's going well as well as where your struggles are because yes. that creates the empathy, it creates the vulnerability, and it creates the authenticity that's needed to connect with people and create the environment that makes it safer for others to do the same. That's right. And just the other day, we had a team meeting and I let off by sharing an experience that was a little bit vulnerable. Then during the rest of the team meeting, a number of people shared experiences where they felt some vulnerability. Some people even cried. What I loved about that is I felt so connected to them afterwards. But later they both told me, or one of them told me, they felt that vulnerability hangover. Fortunately, I had sent an email to thank them for sharing that. 
that's the other thing is when people do express their vulnerability, reinforce, thank you for sharing that. I appreciated that because when we do say something, it can feel very uncomfortable. It's important that we go back and reinforce. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciated that. I bet it made more of a difference that you sent it to them one-on-one rather than just saying something in the meeting. There's something about that one-on-one follow-up that Mm -hmm. validates it and you're not trying Mm -hmm. to show that you're positioning for the rest of the Mm -hmm. team. Yeah, that makes sense. So I have another question for you. Whitney, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Yes, I am. So at the beginning of the episode, we talked about someone who influenced or inspired you. You talked about that, which we can say here. (laughs) When you were a teenager, Whitney, what's a song that you loved? Oh, that's easy. Oh, it's not easy because I have to pick one. Stevie Wonder, Sir Duke. How does that go? I can't sing it. It's da, 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 da. That's how it goes. I hope people can hear that based on how I was singing. If I know you were going to have me sing it, I would have chosen any of your song like, row your boat. (laughs) Too late now. (laughs) So you have such important work that you recognize can make a difference for the lives of working managers and leaders in companies small and large. What's been the most effective way you've found to get the message out about your work each week? My podcast. I do that every week. What's the best advice you've ever received? Smile more. What's the worst advice you've ever received? That ship has sailed. What would you say is the last or the best $100 purchase, roughly $100 or so purchase that you've made in the last three months? A really cool blow dryer called the Lange that makes you, gives you a blowout as if you were at a salon. Oh. It's awesome. What a difference just a a little thing like that makes in your daily routine now. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. What is your definition of personal success just for you, not for your team, not for your company, not for your clients? What's your definition of letting of how you evaluate your success? When I'm good with God. When you observe a team within a company, their interactions, what's one thing that you pick up on quickly to validate that they're on the right track to identifying and embracing the tools that will help them be effective by growing themselves, they grow their business? When I see them helping each other and collaborating. In your blog, you explore how winter is a state of mind inspired by Catherine May's new book, from which I quote, winter is at once a season of the natural world, a respite our bodies require, and a state of mind. What's one way that you will exit your winter state of mind, Whitney? Such a great question. By cleaning, cleaning, like cleaning. I just noticed the other day I went through and organized my closet. And it's now, as we're having this conversation, it's the middle of February. I think that there was some element of that was exiting and the winter, the hibernation starting to organize and get ready for the opening up of the world. I'm a true believer in that we create our environments and then our environments create us. So you're sending a signal through that act. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most personal pleasure or satisfaction? I've stopped believing it's okay to do something else right up until the last second before I hop on a Zoom call or a meeting. So I'm starting to give myself a buffer. Stopped believing it was okay to not have a buffer. What kind of a difference has that made so far? A couple things. Number one is that it allows me, it, it, speaking of anxiety, it lowers anxiety because I come into a meeting and I'm feeling calm and relaxed for that meeting or a podcast interview like we're having. It also allows me space to focus on the person I'm going to talk to and have a conversation with. It also allows me to troubleshoot any technical issues so that I am not agitated by my 
my microphone or something not working. So all of those things contribute to feeling a greater sense of calm and enjoyment for what I'm about to do. Bravo. You have shared so many great ideas and insights with me on my quest for the best. I want to thank you so much. Starting off with Bewitched and Samantha, it takes us back and think about how some of the shows we watched had an influence on our lives and the directions that we took. I love that you talked about the emotional hunger that you knew wasn't being satisfied at your work on Wall Street. The fact that we talked about at SAP and about how the S-curve made a difference in understanding how that, that person was making a career and setting up those aspirations. Looking at how we each have a portfolio of S-curves in our lives and in our work and any particular project that we have to look at. And also how that study with Egon Zender that looked at a thousand CEOs and asked about what they consider to be important in order to grow their companies. Pre-pandemic, the number was dreadfully low. And post-pandemic, majority of them agreed that it's important to do personal development in order to do business growth successfully. Also, for your idea of the importance of having a personal buffer, because it lowers your anxiety and it shows you that you're in control of your personal environment and that helps you reflect your best self in the situations that you put your in, yourself in. So for these reasons and so many more, Whitney John and thank you again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thanks for having me, Bill. Say, Whitney, before we say goodbye, where can we find out more about your work online? Disruptionadvisors.co. In the show notes, we're going to list, we're going to link to disruptionadvisors.co to make it super easy for people listening to our conversation to find out more about you and the work that's going on in your business to help people implement S-curves so that they could build a stronger business. Whitney Johnson, author of Smart Growth, How to Grow Your People to Grow Your Company. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. It has been a lot of fun. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.